Hello and welcome to this week's episode of BWB Extra, where we get to know Chief Development Officer at Saima, Mr. John West, a little better. We're going to wind the clock back and start with young, fresh-faced John. How did you end up doing what you're doing? Did you go to university? Yeah, so I went to university to become a software developer. And I like Scotty on the Starship Enterprise. I wanted to work in enterprise software where the where the problems were were very large and and complex. And uh, back in the late '90s, um, if you wanted to uh, work with the latest technology and you wanted to have access to the most powerful software and systems, you did that in an enterprise. You would go to a large company and work for a large company. It's kind of funny. I was just realizing that. Somewhere around 2010, all of the fancy and best technology was just out here in, in customer electronics, you know, and we had these old antiquated mainframes at work and I'm using an iPhone, yeah. right? You know, we were using our Xboxes to have video conference calls and video conference calls didn't happen in corporations until like, you know, 2015 or something. But back then, you had to go into a, a large enterprise. So I was a, a database developer. I worked on uh, software that would be used by organizations to make that organization you know, more efficient or to avoid risks or to identify customer segments. And, uh, and so my first job was with, was with a company that was a dot-com. And so in 1998, it was the first year, that, that Christmas around 99 was the first year that people were willing to put their credit cards into the machine. Like they didn't think, oh, my, putting my credit card on the internet would be crazy. And like in 97, no one would do that. So they had a, this company had a fax uh, and they would send out catalogs to people. And uh, so they, they they hired me as the second or third employee uh, for this new internet engineering thing. And it was family business. And they put the um, they put the the brother-in-law in charge of the one that they were like, you know, kind of the, you know, the, the fuck the up. Problem, the problem <laughs> family member. Yeah, you give him this, <laughs> give him this department. And so, you know, it was, it was a couple of guys with uh, goatees and, and ponytails. Nice. And, uh, and we started typing up. And created a billion-dollar dot-com company wow. that sold computers and computer accessories. We created the first auction website before eBay that was ever created. Uh, of course, Amazon. You know, ten years yeah. later, Amazon would eat their lunch, and then of course, eBay w- w- would do it. Would do it right. Uh, so I was there for the big 1999-2000 dot-com craze. And we saw what we were able to do is we were able to just copy and paste the code from one site into a different site, rebrand it, and call it a different company. Yeah. And so all the lawyers came in and they they created these um, initial public offerings. And that's when I fell in love with that idea of wow, you could spin off, you could have a startup which we were working in, and then you could spin that startup off into an IPO, and then you get things like shares yeah. and options yeah. and all this stuff type of stuff. And so I was like twenty or twenty two at the time, and had you know um, millions of options and all that kind of stuff. So I walked away from that company with, with uh, lots of options and shares on the table, but enough, enough in my pocket that, uh, and I could see that the wheels were about to come off of this whole dot-com thing. And so I started my own software development company that just worked in enterprise software, not in dot-coms. And then the next year, everything crashed. And uh, you know it was really great for hiring. We would put out an ad for hiring, and we'd get 100 applications uh, come back. And uh, that was in Los Angeles. And so we, we ran that company. My wife and I ran that company for uh, seven or eight years. And what I learned is that you can have a startup or you can have a child. You have to choose which one because it takes the same amount of time. Yeah. So we sold that startup, moved to Canada, and, and had our daughter. And then I, worked, I just worked for uh, kind of the big three consulting companies. I ended that stage of that chapter of my career at IBM. 
working in what was called big data, which was giant data warehousing. And we were working for, with Fortune 100 companies to help them to understand like, how to sell you know, more to customers and, and, and that sort of thing. And it's during that time that my brother-in-law and my father-in-law were moving all this intellectual property out of Saimar. And they were saying, geez, you know, I think we got an investor, a venture cap. We have a, a meeting with a venture capitalist and they're asking us for like business cases and, you know, business plan and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, well, I can do that. You know, like that's, this sounds very interesting. And so when it felt like it was starting to move forward, I jumped on board, yeah. not realizing that it was going to be three or four years of talking to venture capitalists before we got our first investor. So it always takes longer than you think it's going to be. And on that note, so what is your long-term goal? So the long-term goal is to end this disease in the early 2030s. Like if you look at um, infections, you know, before penicillin, they were on the rise, people died of infections all the time, then penicillin happened. If you look at scurvy, before they understood that it's vitamin C, people were dying more and more of scurvy, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden they weren't. Same with smallpox. And so diabetes is on this curve where it's going up and up and up, and it is due to, to fall off a cliff. And so we're here for the long term. We're not going to exit the company until we're absolutely sure that this disease has been solved. And uh, luckily, you know, our family is a majority shareholder in this company. We still have full control of the company. Over the next 10 years, we will retain uh, full control over the company, and we will solve this problem. We're, and we're not going to be swayed because we're not going out to public markets. We're not going to be swayed by those same forces that we're talking about in the insurance industry or, or in big pharma. And so until that mission is done, we're not going to stop. And of course, we will make a huge return on investment for our investors. You know, fortunes uh, will be made, but that's not where we're, where we're in, in this for. You know, the founders of the company are in their 70s. It's not like mm -hmm. they're going to go out and buy a yacht. You know, I'd be happy to go buy a new kayak or a, a new paragliding wing. We're not in it for the money. We want to really bring this discovery all the way out to the people that, that it can help. And that's the goal. And what do you think the most misunderstood thing about the business is? The most misunderstood thing is that everyone is a scientist and that everyone must have white lab coats on and the whole thing is, 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 is full of science. And it is. Like, science drives us and the scientific method we use all the time in business to understand if something is, is working or not. But in order to, to move forward, I mean, just this Regulation A offering requires skills that are far from science. You need to understand marketing. You need to understand the difference between marketing and sales. You need to understand lead generation. You need to understand all the securities laws. You need to understand all the accounting uh, that needs to happen and all of the auditing, you know, the, the legal contracts and, you know, e-commerce. All this needs to come into play. And that's not something that most scientific companies have. So we need to have creatives. We need to have, you know, accountants and administrators you know, we talk about the business, but that's like three different people in our company that, that work on the business. The company's relatively small. I think we have 14 or 15 employees. And so five of them are scientists and five of them are kind of in administration. Five of them are in the creative business, business side of the company. So it doesn't take a large company. In fact, a small company might be better suited at this stage. And it's not all just science, science, science. I mean, for every ounce of science, we have a pound of regulatory talking to everybody and getting permission and working through ethics and, and trying to figure out how we recruit for clinical trials and are we allowed to take blood samples? Can we store those blood samples? Can we freeze those blood samples? No, 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 you can't do that. You got to get permission. So there's a lot, you know, it's easy to say clinical trials, but, you know, there are 50 people that we use as contractors that spend their entire life trying to plan just those two words, clinical trials, and that extends into the entire company. What's your business doing about climate change? 
Uh, all of our products, we've, we've gone through three different prototypes of our products that are behind me on the shelf, and each one of those uh, revisions have reduced the packaging by 40%. We make sure that the pills are packaged in ways where we're not shipping air when we ship our pills out. And our test meal is a test meal that's um, powder, and you, can, you, can, you mix it with water right before you give it to the participant. But uh, you know, instead of shipping water all over the place, and then all the packaging you, you can throw into the recycle bin. It's all it's all blue bin ready. But it sounds like you've thought about it quite a lot. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, in terms of the packaging, etc. Also, and- I mean, to be fair, if you find a cure for type two diabetes and you can actually sell that at an economic rate, I think you're doing enough for the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there there have to be a lot of you know. Einsteins and Elon Musks that that have diabetes, and if you could extend ten more years of them being productive, maybe they'll figure out some way to make you know free clean energy. So you know, there's knock on effects, perhaps. John, what's your what would you say your biggest screw up is? Is there something you've done wrong and learned from? It really comes out of my previous uh, life working as a software consultant and being hired in to fix a problem that the uh, client was sure was a software problem. And uh, the later in my career, the more I realized that this is not a software problem, this is a human problem. If the people in the field think that the people back in the office are an ivory tower, and the people in the ivory tower think that the people in the field are a bunch of idiots, then no time tracking system or task tracking system or software is going to work. What you need to do is, is have the people in the home office go out in the field and spend a week out living the lives of what the field workers are and vice versa and get a little bit of trust mm-hmm. built. And then all of a sudden you don't need to have a system that manages or monitors what, what everyone's doing. So the application of technology for non-technology problems, I think is a lesson that I learned over and over again and getting to the end of a project and realize I will, you know, like it did it again. I will never do this again. And so in the later part of my software career, I was the guy who got brought in at the very beginning to say, whoa, 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 whoa. <clears throat> are we sure that this is a software or a technology problem? And it's not just a, a human problem or a market problem. Like your your product sucks. No amount of buying Google AdWords is gonna is gonna sell your product. This is not a technology problem. This is a product or a human problem. Yeah. People don't like to be told their product sucks, though. That's the problem. Yeah, but sometimes it can save them a million dollars. When I worked at IBM, it was one of the first weeks that I worked there. We were acquired. And um through this acquisition, we went to a uh, we went to a party at, at a very large airplane manufacturer out of Seattle. And it was like they were popping champagne bottles and all the stuff. And it was a, a fancy affair. And everyone was partying. It was a big party. I was like, wow, this is great. This is a kickoff party for the project. Like, you know, like, what is this for? Like, no, this is a cancellation party because we canceled the project before we spent $300 million in the wrong place. I'm like, whoa, that's smart. More people should be doing that. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark, straight-talking financial and legal advice since 1935. You can find us at oriclark.com. What's your passion outside of your business? My current passion, it might be an obsession, is uh, paragliding, wow. which is um, kind of a parachute that's shaped, like a, shaped yeah. more like a wing, and you get to the top of a mountain, and you get that wing up above you your head, jump. and then you just run right off of a cliff out into the air and fly for hours. Wow. How do you get back to where you started from? Do you just come down somewhere random eventually? We usually have an area that's designated as a landing right. zone and it has a windsock down there. And that's usually where we collect. 
So we'll try to wait until we get five or 10 people that want to go up together. And hopefully there's, there's a truck down there as well. And then we drive everyone in one truck up to the very top of the mountain. So you can sort of aim for a certain point, can you? We aim, yeah. And when I first started, I was like, this is amazing. Like, think about how smart people are that we all going off there and the wind's blowing in all different directions. We go all over the place. And we all land at the same place. Like, that's unbelievable. But, you know, birds can do it. <laughs> I, I think probably butterflies can do it as well. And then also... Um, there's lots of mountains, but in the valleys, it's all farmland. All right. And so as long as you're landing someplace that's not a vineyard, doesn't have like a horse or like a bull you know, in, yeah, in a pen, you know, try to land yeah. somewhere where there's not any crops, then you're fine. And the, and the farmers are very hospitable. Like, you know, we smile, hey, and they're like, wow, did you jump from a plane? And then, you know, you have to get no-no from that mountain over there. And often they'll drive us back to our landing zone. Well, if there's one thing we all know about Canada, it's everybody's nice. Well, that's that's yeah, the, the face you guys present to the world, anyway. Well, we had a we had a group just yesterday. I was flying with a group from San Diego, and uh, they were like, they were telling us that like, no, it's a serious risk that if we land on a farm, that someone's going to shoot at us with a shotgun. Oh, God, like, yeah. oh no, not out here in Canada. They might come out with a beer, you know, like, hey, how are you guys doing? You might guys want to go back up the mountain, eh? I remember when I was younger, actually speaking of paragliding, and uh, I'm I'm from the Canary Islands in Spain. And they do a lot of paragliding over there. Yes, they do. It's one of the greatest locations yeah, for paragliding in the world. But I remember yes. when I was younger, a guy used to... I hope there's no kids listening. So if there are, don't don't let your kids listen. A guy used to dress up as Santa Claus and paraglide, paraglide onto the beach and then hand out all of our gifts. And we thought that that was how Santa arrived. Because none of us have chimneys in the Canary Islands. So right. I thought when you started that story with, I hope there are no kids listening, <laughs> I thought it was going to go kind of massively X-rated. But no, it was a Father Christmas story. I'd like to anyway know <laughs> what kids are listening to Business Without Bullshit. But there we go. <laughs> I was going the same the same direction, Pippa, because uh, you know recently, I think last year, someone lost a bet and had to go paragliding naked. Oh, that right? must be cold yeah, as yeah, yeah. well, though. <laughs> it was something you don't want to yeah. see. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but uh, yeah, they, they lost the bet, and I was like, oh, you better land in the landing zone because if you land out, you know, on the coast, you're going to come back in the cop car. What's the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? The worst piece of advice is, um, and it comes from. It comes from either venture capitalists or the gatekeepers for them. So if it's a if it's a gatekeeper, any sentence that starts with "investors want to see," just stop listening. Stop because they're, they they don't know what they're freaking talking about. We have ninety eight uh, in, individual investors in our company. Every single one of them are a different cat, and they all want to see something different. And they want to have they want to just be told the truth. They want honesty. And other than that, it's not you're not going to come up with some secret slide deck or some way to like adjust your forecast so that everyone's you know, there's happy. no secret handshake. Yeah. There's none of that. It's you just got to be yourself and and don't change anything. I um. You know, so so the other piece of advice, you know, so I guess that the larger piece of advice there is, is don't change. Just be what you're going to be. Hey, we're a family company. We're a small business. We're not Pfizer, right? But, you know, that might be what you're looking for to invest in. And pretending to be something you're not is just going to end in tears anyways. So, you know, just be who you are and don't don't change things. I mean, listen and learn and you know, take advice, but don't follow it. Mm. Everyone, for whatever reason, they want to listen to you for five minutes. We've been working on this for 15 years, thinking about what investors want to hear. And someone's listened to us for three minutes or five minutes, and they're going to tell us all the stuff that we need to change, and they haven't even looked yeah. at it yet. Yeah. And so just be very, very aware of, 
of where you're getting your advice from. I, I, I know I'm going to, on too long, but we have, a, we have a, um, a data room that allows people to come in and look at all the um, um, sensitive information after you sign a non-disclosure information. You can see all of our clinical trial results and, and take a look at, at some, some more of those things. And the best part about that data room is it shows us how much time they've spent. And so we would have a meeting with a venture capitalist and say, hey, did you have a chance to go to the data room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I spent like 20 minutes in there. Like, no, you didn't. You didn't even open, the, you didn't even open it once. And so you're going to start this with a lie. And then those are the people who give you the most advice. Well, what you really should do is decentralize all these products or you know, whatever it is that they, that they think you should do. So people come to you with their agendas and you just have to be very careful if, if you're just really getting good advice or if you're just getting yeah, what one person wants. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? The best piece of advice that I was given was given to me by my mother-in-law. And uh, this was back when I was 22 or whatever. And uh, just starting off in my career. And she was a very successful lawyer, partner at a law firm. And, you know, had a very successful uh, career. And I, I said something like, how do you do it? Like, what's, how do you get to the point where you're making all this money and, and, and you're in such an enviable position? And she says, you know, find, find really hard problems and solve those problems. And the harder the problem that you solve, that makes you more valuable. What I thought when I was 20 was that, you know, rich people were just like Montgomery Burns and they're like, hey, excellent. And they would just try to, they're just trying to steal money from, from poor people. And that might happen or whatever, but that's not really where most people make their fortune. They make their fortune because, you know, Steve Jobs created the iPhone. That iPhone is worth a billion dollars a day in value to all of us who use it every single day. And then, so, you know, if he takes a billion dollars a year out of, out of that, no one notices. Mm. You know, just take a small portion of, of the value that, that you create and everyone's happy. Wow, you created 1,000 points of value and you want three points back? That's, that's fantastic. And what advice would you give your younger self? Well, it's kind of a corollary to that, but like um, you can't get to success in straight lines. You can't just go right from here to there. You, you got to kind of travel in an arc through through value. So figure out where the value, where you can provide value, and focus on that. Like I wish I wouldn't have been swayed by high paying jobs. Mm. I wish I would have taken more internships to learn the skills because those skills are really the most important pieces. The high paying jobs you learn a lot in the first couple of weeks, and then they just work you like a dog until you leave. And so instead of just going from A to B, like just going right to the high paying job, give yourself permission, especially when you're young. You don't have, you don't have a mortgage and children and, and those responsibilities. When you're young and you're just at a university and you're poor anyways, just uh, offer to work for free in order to, to learn. And then in the three or four months when you learn everything, leave and go someplace else. Once you learn how to provide that value, then being rich or successful or those things will follow naturally. But you can't go, you can't go straight from here to being successful. You've got to figure out how you build value along the way. Have you got any recommendations for us for things to read or watch or listen to? Yeah, actually, so as a side project, Simar produces a podcast called uh, Inside the Breakthrough, How Innovation Comes to Life. You know, I'm, a, I'm a lover of history. I love all those old stories. So this podcast focuses on um, one or two individuals in the past. It's kind of like a mystery of who it is we're talking about and the work that they were doing, how they made the discovery, and, uh, and then who they are at the end. It's like a little bit of a, of a reveal. And um, each one of those podcasts end in a moral theme or lesson about, oh, what did we learn yeah. here about this? And so there, we've got two seasons that are out right now. Uh, they've won awards. They're very popular. People listen uh, to the podcast uh, all the way through. We have 100% retention rates on, on all of our episodes. Fantastic. And uh, we're about to release season three, and we'll release that when our Regulation A offering opens up. 
Uh, it's not about Simar. It's I'm not the host. We have a professional host. Um, it's not about our science. It's all about these other discoveries. But if you listen closely, the, the first 10 episodes are the 10 hardest questions that we've ever been asked as a startup. Why does this take so long? Yeah. How come no one else... Uh, no one else is doing this. You know, how do you know that you're right? How do clinical trials work? Like, where did that even, where did that you know, e- even start? How do you value a, dis- a discovery like this? And, and is it ethical to, to make money off of curing a, a disease? All of those are really, you know, baked into the, into those stories. Uh, but they're just fun stories and uh, 20 minutes long. It's called Inside the Breakthrough, and you can find it on any of the podcast uh, apps that are out there. And that was this week's episode of BWB Extra. And we'll be back tomorrow with our finale for the week, the Business or Bullshit Quiz. Stay tuned.